0: Ms. Rekia, Government Affairs Director for the We Serve Association of Realtors. Thanks for joining me today. As we heard in part one of this three-part series, Coffee with MAG, the Maricopa Association of Governments, MAG has data and social services data you and your clients may find helpful and informative. There is a lot of information you, the taxpayer, pays MAG to gather. As a regional planner for Maricopa and Pinal counties, MAG information informs our local social services policies, transportation planning, and infrastructure planning. The federal government through the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, requires certain reports on air quality. The EPA isn't familiar with Arizona's geography or the monsoon season, so we have been penalized over the years for air quality during monsoon season. Communicating with the EPA is one of the jobs MAG does in hopes of informing them of Arizona's naturally occurring seasonal monsoons. MAG also engages with cities and the U.S. Census Bureau for their planning needs. Listen as Scott Wilkin and Kelly Taft tell us more about working with the Census Bureau and city planners in part two of this three-part series, Coffee with MAG, first recorded at a live event in 2019. So let's start back off with some more questions. In addition to the regional planning agency, you also perform the air quality, which you had mentioned a little bit more, and some of the transportation planning. You also do policy decisions on water quality and human services. So tell us a bit about how MAG interacts with, let's start with individual cities. So the individual
1: cities are are mag member agencies. So it's all of the incorporated cities and towns within the Maricopa region, as well as the, the town of Florence and the city of Maricopa in the Pinal County area, and so they they serve directly on our governing board. But we assist them with all kinds of of technical support that we provide to them. Uh, we work with them on on all kinds of areas of interest. But they serve on our regional council. So our governing board is a regional council. And if you think about it, it's like all of the elected officials. So there's 27 cities and town mayors that serve on the board. There's three tribal presidents who represent the three native nations on our board. Okay. There's Maricopa County supervisors from Maricopa County and Pinal County. Right. And then we have two state transportation board members who serve on our regional policy body for transportation related decisions. And
0: then, do you also interact at the state level with the for air quality as well, or is that purely at the county level?
1: No, we work very closely with the ADEQ. Again, MAG is charged with developing um, plans for the, the three key pollutants in the region, which are carbon monoxide, ozone, and particulate matter uh, less than 10 microns in diameter or dust. So it's called PM10, but you really can think of that as dust. So we develop the air quality plans in conjunction with the State Department of Environmental Quality. So so they do kind of a a state plan, and we have the regional plan, and that's what gets sent up to the EPA. So we work very closely with them on air quality issues.
0: And then some of the other studies that you are conducting, we're going to go through each one of these studies a little bit so you can describe what that study is um, and any details that you think would be great of of great interest Mm -hmm. to us. So the first one is pollution and air quality. So we sort of hit the high points, but what does that entail exactly? You know,
1: I think that the, um, the most important thing that, you know, I think it's important for groups like this to understand is that there's a perception that our air quality is getting worse when, in fact, our air quality continues to get better. So it's frustrating to, when you hear people saying we continue to have more and more problems with pollution. So we are actually in attainment for the PM10 standard, which is dust. We're in attainment for, for carbon monoxide. In fact, we're well below, we're almost uh, almost 70% below the standard for the carbon monoxide levels. In ozone, we've made tremendous progress. We've met three out of the four ozone standards. And one of the challenges that we have is you know, as cars get cleaner and, and, and we um, have a, a stronger eye toward the air quality they toughen up the standards. So you'll meet one and then like in 2015, then they, they, they decreased it to 0.070 parts per million and the, the previous one was 0.75 parts per million. So, so I think that's one of the challenges, but I, I do think it's really important that people recognize what a difference that we have made um, when it comes to air quality. And a lot of that has to do with the control measures that have been implemented. So it's everything from federal tailpipe standards, but there's other things like transit, there's, lose my mic. Yeah. Um, Transit and ride sharing and some, all of those things, you know, not using leaf blowers on high pollution advisory days. Part of that conception is I know we have called a lot more high pollution advisory days recently. So we get a lot of people saying, well, our, our air quality must be getting a lot worse because we have all these HPA days. But the whole idea between, behind those days is to make sure that we don't exceed the standard and that we protect public health and we stay clean. Because by staying clean, um, then we can be in attainment, and then you aren't under any kind of sanctions and having to prepare all the plans all the time. So. Right. So
0: talking about the the standards and stuff like that, and you're and you're right, they have been tightening up. So from so one side, there's people who say, well, we must be getting worse because. We're, this is a constant battle, so to speak. But there's the other side of people are going, well, gosh, every time we get to where you where, where the goal is, they move the goalpost. Is there any kind of conversation with the federal, I'm assuming that we're getting a lot of that from the federal government because the stuff I read is them changing. Is there any kind of conversation from our state, our locals, you back to the feds going, so
1: Right, and we do have what those do conversations all the time. I mean, we do work very closely with EPA Region Nine. We also have uh, an actual uh, lobbyist that works in Washington D.C. Okay. that also uh, can help p- promote some of some of Meg's preferences for when it comes to air quality. One of our big challenges is, um, like with PM10, if you have an exceptional event like a, a haboob or a, a major right. dust storm or a wildfire that causes the monitors to go over and exceed the standard, then you have to go and you have to document that that exceptional event occurred. And that is a very, very time-consuming process. There's transport that comes, when we had all the wildfires in California last year, that smoke uh, actually transported over into our area and also caused some, some monitor issues so it's that documentation and kind of working with EPA to find ways to streamline that process um, because the the documentation's like <laughs> this thick and expensive. it's and those procedures kind of can slow down the process. So we're That's always fine. looking for ways just to to make that that process happen quicker.
0: Yeah, and I can remember a few you guys may remember a few years ago we had a series of haboobs which is what happens to us in August and September. <laughs> it's like, that's what's it's called, the monsoon season for a reason. And those dust storms would come up and EPA was smacking us down, it seemed like every other week. And the whole thing was, well, this is this is just what our environment is. And one of the answers I read from one of the folks back at EPA in their statement was, well, then you should pave things over, which of course was, I read that like 14 times and went, what are you talking about? <laughs> Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Um, So I guess part of it is the frustration at at a level here where it's just the folks back there don't understand who or what we are. We are not a dense metropolitan Washington, D.C. or New York or New Jersey or something like that. We are a western state with lots of land and that land, you know, God in nature does things to like have winds happen. So I I guess it's part, are we making any forward progress at the APA understanding what a Western state is versus a dense Eastern city? Do they have any comprehension? I, I do know there's a lot of those conversations
1: um, going on. Uh, we, we work very closely with other Western states like mm-hmm. Nevada, other Intermountain West states to talk about how we are in a unique situation being mm-hmm. in a, in a yeah. dusty, dry desert with,
0: <laughs> with winds. Yes. Okay, so. great. Well, it's good to know that they're at least getting the information. <laughs> um, MAG is instrumental in a successful census. So tell us about that process, what you do, and we are ramping up for the next census. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Right. Census 2020 is coming up. April 1st will be the reference day for the 2020 census. That will be, you will be getting a postcard in the mail around March 23rd um, that will give you your ID number. A couple of different things about the census this time around is that it's the first census in history that you will have an online option and you will also have a phone call option, which does pose some challenges when you have rural areas that may not have a lot of internet access. There's a lot of key messages that are really important. You know, the Census Bureau, groups like yours can really, really help us in in helping to convince you know, your constituents and the people that you interact with, the importance of the census. Uh, We're talking about $675 billion in federal funds that are distributed based on population. In Arizona, it's $20 billion in state shared revenues that get divvied up to cities and towns based on their population. And so it's very, very critical that the cities get an accurate and complete count because that money helps pay for things like police, fire libraries, schools, Head Start programs, and all that. So you really want to try to get a complete and accurate census. You know, one of our key messages this year is going to be how easy it is to go online and do it. And then also it's confidential. And that's also a really key message that we really um, will be hitting hard this year, partly because of some of the, the immigration discussions that have taken place. But It's a $250,000 fine if if anyone shares your census information. It's completely protected for 75 years. There's a lot of of steps being taken to ensure that the online component remains confidential and that is encrypted. So we really want people to understand that it's important. It also determines the uh, congressional representation. We're actually, Arizona's expected to get a 10th congressional seat after the 2020 census. It's safe and it's easy and it's important. MAG also serves another function, and that's to work with our member agencies on the technical side of things. So, Scott, you want to kind of talk about some of the things that you do on your end as well?
2: Right. The 2020 census is coming up in less than a year, and that doesn't mean that we're just starting to, to ramp up for it. It's been the Census Bureau prepares throughout the entire decade getting ready for the next decennial census. And one example of that is in 2015, they came to the region and in five or six specific areas around Maricopa County, they actually did testing of the methods that they want to use. The, the online collection, um, advertising, and they did some of the door-to-door testing to help make sure that what they're planning on doing in 2020 works. And they do that, they, they do tests throughout the decade. Our last year, we uh, MAG assisted all our cities and towns in making sure that the Census Bureau has an updated address list. Um, they send these initial letters to every household and they wanna make sure they've got every household's address. And they wanna make sure they've got information about dorms so they can send the census forms to, to ASU to all the people who live in dorms in the U of A and into the, the big universities like that, which is one of the hardest populations to count because people start leaving school and they think, oh, my parents will take care of it. No, we need to know where you live on census day. So we assisted uh, making sure they had an updated address list. And there are a lot of other geographies that the Census Bureau looks at. Um, on the map view where you saw we make great use of the block groups and census track data, and that gets updated every every 10 years. And so that's something. Just yesterday, we actually submitted updated block group and track boundaries, uh, at least suggestions, to the Census Bureau so they can look at where population is, grow, is expected to grow in the next 10 years, and they can make those block groups smaller so they can actually use that as uh, a workable census geography. We make sure they have updated city boundaries, city and town boundaries. As the city's annexed land, they want to be able to to, to provide accurate reports about what is each city's demographics. Right. And if they don't have that, that updated annexation information, then, uh, then that, can, that can be misleading as well. So we, we work with our cities and towns to make sure the Census Bureau has everything they need leading up to it and afterward to make sure that we can distribute all of the census information once it's transmitted to the, the White House and is, is distributed publicly in 2021 We'll put it on our website, we'll update our viewers, and we'll make that great. all that stuff available to everybody.
0: Oh, great. Okay, that's very easy and convenient. So the other thing I wanted to mention, if you are interested in the Census Bureau and how it does what it's doing, they have been presenting not only to Maricopa County, but they've been presenting in front of Congress for this, over the course of this decade as well. And they are really ramping up their updates to Congress as, as we move closer to the census. So if you're interested in the mechanics of that, you can go to C-SPAN's website, and you can find those presentations by the Census Bureau. Yes, I've watched several of them. They're really interesting. <laughs> so although it sounds kind of weird, it gives you a better insight on into how they're counting and why they're counting the way they do, which a lot of times we don't really understand. So take the time, if you're interested in that mechanical part of it, to find out what that is. And then you also have a plan for, um, regional plan for domestic violence. Talk to us a little bit about that. Right. So,
1: again, domestic violence is one of those issues that crosses jurisdictional boundaries. We have made tremendous progress in terms of improving communication. So if an abuser lives in Peoria but then moves to Mesa, there's a lot of, of, of communication now that takes place. So that they have, they, they can track um, that kind of thing. So we have a regional domestic violence council. It's one of our policy committees. It's basically a, a coordinating body for all issues related to domestic violence to address, prevent, and eventually, hopefully mm-hmm. eradicate domestic violence in the, in the MAG region. So they work with the community to implement best practices and recommendations in a regional domestic violence plan that the council is, is constantly updating. Um, I know some of the activities in the past is to d- d- develop protocols for law enforcement when it comes to arresting and prosecuting domestic violence offenders. They hold joint trainings to make sure that we're all on the same page. And that council is made up not just of MAG member agencies, but law enforcement, prosecution, the governor's office for women, victim advocates, so- social service agencies, they meet monthly and they address issues that kind of cross all those jurisdictional boundaries.
0: Wow. How about homeless care?
1: So we also have um, uh, several uh, committees that work on human services. So for homelessness, it's our regional continuum of care board, and they oversee planning to address homelessness in the region. One of the things that they do that you might be familiar with that just happened back in January is they really they do an annual point-in-time homeless street count. It's a one-night snapshot where volunteers from across the region go out, and they do a count of all the unsheltered population. And then those numbers are eventually combined with the same number of people that were in shelters on that night. Uh, We just actually released a few weeks ago the, the final counts from that. Homelessness continues to be a a really big concern in our area. The number of the unsheltered count rose by about 22 percent, so it's the sixth straight year in a a row that we've seen an increase in the unsheltered count. We have about over 6,000 homeless individuals, and that's both the unsheltered count and and those living in shelters, and then also, um, you know, about 3,000 unsheltered. So that's one of the key things they do. They also, the committee is also responsible for doing a coordinated application process for HUD funding, the Housing the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And last year, about $26 million was allocated to our region, and that really provides housing and services. I, I think it supports uh, about 14 different programs, er, 40, I'm sorry, 40 different programs, 13 agencies so that's one of the things that
0: the Continuum of Care Committee addresses. So I don't know if you know the answer to this or, or if you can give us maybe a source risk, But in a time when we have very low unemployment and we have employers who are desperate for, for labor in all fields from and across all spectrums of experience, from the inexperienced on up, what's causing that dramatic increase in homelessness? Are, are we looking at people with with mental health and health issues primarily? Or are we looking with people who, who just need someone to direct them to maybe job training or a combination? What are we looking at?
1: And that is exactly what the, the committee uses this data for. I mean, the, the questions on the survey when they do the count include everything from, is this your first time being homeless, are you a veteran, are you a family? This was actually the first time they counted homeless pets as part of the count. But I, I think that it's a very complex issue. Right. But, but one is just housing affordability. Yeah. When the economy started to improve, that meant that there was a, a lot fewer um, places that provided low-income and affordable housing. So affordable housing is, is a huge concern for our region, and I know that's a key focus. Okay. Great. We
2: actually track housing sales, residential sales right. from the MLS data and... Yeah, we have seen rising housing prices, yes. and we saw uh, there was a time coming out of the recession that, that Canadian investors were coming down, oh, and yes. oil prices were up. They were buying a lot of foreclosed homes, and now we're seeing a lot of people in, in California who are, are able to buy investment homes. And seeing some areas that have traditionally been more affordable are being bought by, by out-of-town investors, <laughs> and those houses are, are being sold for, for higher prices, and, and it's starting to price a lot of people out. Um, That's one of the many factors that that we think is probably going on. Okay,
0: thank you. All right, how about solid waste
1: management? Well, uh, MAG is responsible for um, developing regional solutions for um, waste reduction, recycling, and and landfilling. So we work, again, with our member agencies. It's kind of systems-level planning. And the whole idea is to prevent adverse environmental effects from improper waste collection and disposal so the plan that, that they produce um, actually includes 11 landfills, uh, 12, 21 transfer stations, uh, recovery and material transfer facilities, et cetera. So it's really um, designed to, again, develop best practices um, to share information on how to deal with solid waste at the systems level. Okay, and then we have water quality management plan. So the water quality management plan is also something that we do. It really has to do with where wastewater treatment facilities are sited and located. It is one of MAG's designated responsibilities to do a water quality management plan. We don't deal with water supply and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things. We really do like a 20-year plan. So if if you're working out and you have those developers, the cities need to tell MAG what wastewater treatment treatment facilities they want to include in that 20 year planning horizon. And then we figure out whether or not um, how all of those waste, wastewater treatment plants are, are configured. Um, they have to look at see how it impacts existing cities, neighboring mm-hmm. cities, et cetera. So that's, they work with all of the cities and it's, it's called Section 208 of the Clean Water Act. So it's the 208 Water Quality Management Plan, but that's um, that we work with our cities to determine where those wastewater treatment facilities are located.
0: And we can access these plans on MAG's website? Yes. Okay. Where is that under? Um, um, if you go to programs, programs, if you go back to the homepage okay. and
1: then drop down to, um, I think under our human services human program. Human services. And, exit, and then it yeah. would be under. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. It would be under the environment. Environmental, environmental. Sorry, the, the environmental homeless and program. domestic violence will be under humans. Yes. <laughs> so.
0: Okay. Great. And then um, one last one. You have study on foreign-owned business ownership and its impacts. So tell us a little bit about that. How it came to be originated and what impacts you're looking at.
2: Well, so. I, I discussed during the uh, the demo of the employment viewer that we've been tracking employers with five or more employees right. for 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 a couple decades now. Mm-hmm. We get data. We get a lot of data about those employers. One of the things is parent company. A couple of years ago, we started looking into where are these parent companies located? If we wanted to, to know, do we have a lot of foreign-owned companies? And we were surprised. We, we do. We we looked at where those companies are located, and uh, we were shocked to find out that Canada has a lot of businesses in the state, especially a lot of retail with, with them owning uh, Circle K and Burger King are two, uh, two of the, the bigger, well-known Canadian-owned companies now. But there's a lot of manufacturing and distribution um, owned by Canadian parent companies. So, for 1,300 businesses in the state that uh, are owned by uh, a Canadian parent company they employ over 26,000 people, which is a, a pretty amazing statistic in itself. But we also looked at uh, we looked at all the all the company all the countries that have a lot of Presence in in Arizona and like I said, Canada is by far the the biggest. The United Kingdom is I think second behind Canada mm-hmm. with over 500 businesses. Lots of European companies, Mexico, Brazil, Japan, Singapore, all all across the world. These companies have invested in in Arizona, which we think is is a fantastic thing. Along with that, we're starting to look at more international trade, and we sent several trade missions up to up to Canada, to Montreal and to Ottawa and to. To, to, to Toronto, Vancouver, and to, to make those connections and help our cities and towns to get, get the, the face-to-face in with the, the business owners in, in Canada. We've, we sent similar missions down to Mexico City and other parts of Mexico to, to try to strengthen that, that, that corridor. But the bottom line is there are a lot of, of businesses in the state and a lot of businesses owned by parent companies in other countries, and they employ over 100,000 people across the state just the, the top ten countries alone. So mm-hmm. it's an important important thing to understand where where those employers are, are coming from and where that money is coming from, as it helps uh, drive our, our business across the state. Right.
0: So if you were at our economic development forum last September, Representative Dunn, who has a grain who has exports grains from his farm in Yuma overseas, particularly in the Pacific Rim talked a little bit about that international trade. We have foreign companies, many more than most of us would have realized here in Arizona. So when you start looking at international economics, it really does impact Arizona locally. And it's sort of a fascinating little line of thought when you start going down there, because all of a sudden, something that happens someplace else we don't necessarily think of can actually affect what's happening in our own backyards. It's really interesting information. The Southwest Freight Sub Area Project, that is at 107th Avenue on the west to 67th Avenue on the east, McDowell South to Buckeye Road. That little grid right there. Tell us more about that project, its goals, its findings, and... Now that you have the data, what will be done with it? So give us sort of an overview, a lot of detail. So this was one
1: of four sub-area studies that are being conducted as a result of recommendations from the uh, MAG Freight Transportation Plan that was conducted in 2016. And the purpose of that plan was to develop the um, critical urban freight corridor network. But this sub-area study is really looking at commercial truck freight traffic and how it intersects with other types of transportation. So they really wanted to do an assessment to look at okay, you have all this freight and these industrial areas that are going to the warehouses and the drop-off locations, but how is that interacting with passenger cars? How is that interacting with other freight rail? How is that interacting with transit? How is it interacting with bicycle and pedestrian uses? So the first phase of the study was really looking at kind of doing an uh, an existing and current conditions assessment. So that just that part is wrapped up. The second phase of the study is really looking at then what did we learn in that and what kinds of recommendations might we make in order to uh, improve the flow and efficiency of goods through through the freight plan. For example, like one of the issues is if if there's a a gridlock or if there's a delay in getting the um, trucks to the facility where they're dropping off, suddenly you have not only delay at at the location but if the truck drivers delayed long enough they might be violating their rest hours so now they've got to find a place to park now they've got to find somewhere that they can go to shut down their truck because they have to take that mandatory time so there's a lot of issues um, involved with you know kind of how freight operates in those industrial clusters there's, so the, there's going to be three other, this was the first one, there's going to be three other sub-area studies. So there's another one on the other side of 59th Avenue that goes to to I-17, also kind of in that southwest right, area. Right. There's one in Glendale and there's one in Tempe. So they will take that data um, and look at kind of what's existing and some of the problems that they were able to assess and then develop uh, uh, some recommendations to kind of improve the efficiency. So
0: for Highway 30, which most of us are familiar with, and if you don't know the Highway 30 proposed route, they just had a set of meetings last month on that. But that's why Highway 30 is such a, a big necessity for us is because of that backbone of industrial where the freight is coming in and out and then connecting up to the South 202. So that is going to be a big load. And if you haven't looked at this study on this sub area, it's really fascinating, and they took actual photographs. So, of areas, and one of them is right by my house. And the picture they took is exactly what I experienced on a. Right- You'd never go up to the crosswalk because if a truck is coming down and needs to make that right turn, he needs all that room. He he can He's going to cross across both of those lanes. It's at Van Buren and 107th, and there's just no way for that truck to make the turn that they need to make without covering both the east and westbound lanes of Van Buren. It's just not physically possible right now. Now. That's one of those things where the city knows that they're going to have, and they will be, and they're planning to change that intersection. So when you do this sub area mapping, is the city coming to you and saying, "Hey, this is a we know this is a critical intersection with trucking and it's in that route area." Or are you going to them and saying, here's what we're finding, let's talk about possible solutions? How does that work, that interaction? It's both. I mean, we obviously work very closely with
1: our member agencies who are familiar with the area know some of the issues. Um, I know they do hire consultants to go and they look at, they do yeah, everything from, you know, traffic counts and how many cars right. are passing through, all of that you know, freight is obviously a, a critical piece of our transportation planning. I mean, without it, right. we can't, you know, we don't have clothes, we don't have groceries, we don't, you know, we aren't able to, That's right. <laughs> to really function. So it's got to be a, a critical piece of, of our transportation planning process. So there will be some recommendations that hopefully will come out of these studies. So this
0: is a question I didn't put in our preview question, but it's it's new information that has come out in the last few weeks or so. When Amazon finishes up putting their big facility down um, south of 10, one of the things they're very proud of is that extra parking lot for their last mile drivers for delivery. And it's fascinating some of the things they're doing to make sure that that last mile driver gets that product in an, in their car and on their way efficiently. But that means as we go into this economy right now where you have that last mile being a critical for both people and goods, when you do your, your area studies, which is focused on freight, do you have a subcomponent that's talking about, oh, and that last mile delivery? We're getting it to the warehouse, in and out of the warehouse, but that last mile delivery component, which is coming in a bigger part of what we're experiencing, is, is there either an add-on study for that Contemplated, or are you, are you? Have you already done that, and we just haven't seen the results of it, or how's that impacting what you do? That is a
1: question that I. I mean, I'm assuming that that all of that is taken into consideration because it's getting those goods to market. It's looking at how how they get through those industrial clusters and how they end. But I'm, I'm not. as not part of the
2: here. if it's not part of the freight study. study specifically, I know that our our transportation modelers. We have a good, great modeling team. They're looking at all kinds of transportation, and that's definitely okay. one of the things they're looking at. They want to make sure that they have a good understanding of who's using the streets and where they're going. Right. And all these last-mile drivers going through our neighborhoods, you constantly see these, these white vans or even people's right. personal cars. That, that all falls into the, the transportation modeling. And I, I would imagine at some point that it's going to be combined with the freight study, if it's not already, but yeah, MAG and, and ADI are looking at all that. Oh, all that's kind of okay.
0: Great. Because that I started reading about what they're planning. I thought, well, that's a great impact on all these corridors. Yeah. <laughs> so that will be I look forward to seeing what that looks like because sure. that's gonna be fascinating. Okay, and um, we're gonna do one more question and then we'll break and go ahead and get lunch. In recent years, MAG has been very active in the economic development and transportation planning. Tell us a little bit more about the MAG Regional Transportation Plan and then We'll get lunch and we'll come back. And we'll talk about a couple of specifics out of that. So when you talk about a regional transportation plan, what is that area and what is that thing? Right. And
1: economic development you mentioned, I mean, that is just a key driver. Transportation infrastructure is vital to the economy. It's what connects all of us. It's what connects employers to businesses, et cetera. So our regional transportation plan is one of our key planning functions at MAG. It is the 20-year plan plan. It's kind of the blueprint for the transportation plan for the next 20 years. So our current plan goes out to 2040. We're required by law to do a regional transportation plan every four years. MAG tends to update it every other year. The next generation, the next plan that they're going to be working on next year is going to be a very critical plan because it is going to be the basis for a potential extension of the half-cent sales tax for transportation. So, in our current plan, which is really the Proposition Four Hundred plan that voters approved back in two thousand and four, that will that funding expires in twenty twenty five. So, we are going to need to look at how we replace that funding or whether we extend that funding, et cetera. So, Mag is responsible for developing the plan that's that's behind be, be behind that funding. And things are changing so rapidly with emerging technologies, etc. Our next generation uh, regional transportation plan, which is being called Imagine, will likely look a lot different from our current plan in that, you know, when we did the plan in 2004 for voters, it it programmed every dollar that we were going to get right. over the next 20 years, which is great because it creates certainty. You understand, okay, we know this project is coming, we know SR30, we know Loop 303 will be built. But it also kind of ties your hands when things do change. So how are, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about autonomous vehicles later, but how are those types of emerging technologies going to, to to change the types of facilities and infrastructure we need? So um, the regional transportation plan um, that we're under currently, it's obviously a multimodal plan. It covers um, all transportation modes from, you know, freeways to arterial streets to transit. It's developed through a cooperative effort for all levels of government, um, the business, public interest groups, etc. And then there's also, you know, falls on, on me to have a very extensive, you know, public involvement program and process. So underneath the regional transportation plan, we also do a five-year list of projects. It's called the Transportation Improvement Program, and that gets updated every year to that fifth-year planning horizon, and so that kind of outlines the projects for the next five years. And the plan also needs to be performance-based, so that's another requirement that the federal government has. You have to make sure that, that, that you've set performance targets and that you meet those targets. And, so, um, and then also air quality conformity requirements, Mm -hmm. if you build that plan, you have to make sure that it's not going to violate air quality standards. So there's a lot to it.
0: it. And it includes air and rail too? We used to
1: do air planning, but that really doesn't fall. to. we used to have a regional aviation system Mm -hmm. plan. So um, we work with our cities in terms of the linkages to like Sky Harbor, but we don't do the regional aviation system plan that we used to do. But, and, rail? and rail, but it does, it, we do, um, I, I don't know if you're talking about light rail or, for, or freight and commuter you know, commu- uh, commu- uh, rail. Freight, well, but, we don't yeah. have any commuters, so freight, right, yeah. So. yeah.
0: Okay. And now you know more about the intricate planning and reporting MAG engages in daily. You also have some idea of the data sets MAG creates and maintains. Listen to part three of this series as we delve into the data sets. We serve GAD. Advocating for private property rights, the right to private contract, and your business.
2: This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business.